July 11th, Acts chapter 28, verses 1 through 31. Once we, Luke, Paul, and his companions, were safe on shore, we learned that we were on the island of Malta. The people of the island were very kind to us. It was cold and rainy, so they built a fire on the shore to welcome us and warm us. As Paul gathered an armful of sticks and was laying them on the fire, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, fastened itself onto his hand. The people of the island saw it hanging there and said to each other, A murderer, no doubt. Though he escaped the sea, justice will not permit him to live. But Paul shook off the snake into the fire and was unharmed. The people waited for him to swell up or suddenly drop dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and decided he was a god. Near the shore where we landed was an estate belonging to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us courteously and fed us for three days. As it happened, Publius's father was ill with fever and dysentery. Paul went in and prayed for him, and laying his hands on him, he healed him. Then all the other sick people on the island came and were cured. As a result, we were showered with honors, and when the time came to sail, people put on board all sorts of things we would need for the trip. It was three months after the shipwreck that we set sail on another ship that had wintered at the island, an Alexandrian ship with the twin gods as its figurehead. Our first stop was Syracuse, where we stayed three days. From there we sailed across to Regean. A day later, a south wind began blowing, so the following day we sailed up the coast to Pirioli. There we found some believers who invited us to stay with them seven days. And so we came to Rome. The brothers and sisters in Rome had heard we were coming, and they came to meet us at the Forum on the Appian Way. Others joined us at the Three Taverns. When Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we arrived in Rome, Paul was permitted to have his own private lodging, though he was guarded by a soldier. Three days after Paul's arrival, he called together the local Jewish leaders. He said to them, Brothers, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Roman government, even though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. The Romans tried me and wanted to release me, for they found no cause for the death sentence. But when the Jewish leaders protested the decision, I felt it necessary to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no desire to press charges against my own people. I ask you to come here today so we could get acquainted, and so I could tell you that I am bound with this chain because I believe that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, has already come. They replied, We have heard nothing against you. We have had no letters from Judea or reports from anyone who has arrived here. But we want to hear what you believe. For the only thing we know about these Christians is that they are denounced everywhere. So a time was set. And on that day, a large number of people came to Paul's house. He told them about the kingdom of God and taught them about Jesus from the scriptures, from the five books of Moses and the books of the prophets. He began lecturing in the morning and went on into the evening. Some believed and some didn't. But after they had argued back and forth among themselves, they left with this final word from Paul. The Holy Spirit was right 
when he said to our ancestors, through Isaiah the prophet, Go and say to my people, You will hear my words, but you will not understand. You will see what I do, but you will not perceive its meaning. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear, and they have closed their eyes, so their eyes cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, and their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. So I want you to realize that this salvation from God is also available to the Gentiles, and they will accept it. For the next two years, Paul lived in his own rented house. He welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God with all boldness and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And no one tried to stop him. If you realize what has been done, the purchase that's been made for you, in order to save you from your sin and the wrath of God, if you realize the greatness of the one who sits upon the throne who created the earth and one day will bring it to an end, if you realize that absolutely everything in this temporal sphere is dust and rot, then you will begin to have a zeal for God. And when you have a zeal for God, you'll have a zeal for missions. Our own lives can so easily testify against us. Our own thoughts on the day of judgment, the Bible says, will either defend or accuse us. I don't need to be a prophet or the son of a prophet to know what your God is. I only have to watch your life. When Jesus Christ is just something you do at the beginning of the week, but yet throughout your life you're a practical atheist, I know who your God is, and it is not the one who is the one true God. When you have just enough Christianity to make you moral and comfortable in the South, I know who your God is. If I could look into your mind and see what occupies your mind, I will know what your God is. Yesterday, many people came to this town to worship a ball. Many people live in this town that worship cars and things of steel and wheels and horns and whistles. Even people in this congregation today who will praise Him here, but not praise Him at all throughout the week. This is where you get all your religion done. Then you ought to be afraid. Because what we have here is God exposing the hearts of men and teaching them in order to make them right. Now, he goes on in verse 6 and he says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. Then if I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my respect? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priest, who despise my name. Now, one of the things that we have to realize, it's very hard for us to, do, to understand this passage because so much of the foundations of our society have fallen apart. We as a people show very little respect for authority. We show very little respect as a country for our leaders. And you can say, well, they deserve little respect. But nonetheless, we are called to respect them. We have little respect for all types of authority, little respect for elders, little respect for parents, little respect for those who are placed over us to guide us and lead us. 
But in the time when this was written, it was a known truth that a son should honor his father. It is something woven into the fabric of society. It is something that is woven even into our own conscience that we should show respect to the one who gives us life. We should honor him. And that a servant, the very position that he holds demands that he honors his master. There is a sense that when you are a recipient as a son of, from the life of your father, or you're a recipient of the good that your master does to you, that you owe something in return, was well recognized in Israel that these are the way things, this is the way things should be. Now he says, knowing all this, then where is my honor? Where is my respect? You see, you will draw your next breath only because God gives it. Your heart will beat only because He gives it its rhythm and its power. Whatever good thing in your life did not come from the sweat of your brow, the brilliance of your mind, or the work of your own hands, it came from Him. Everything you have, even if you are here today and you are the vilest and most wicked God-hating man on the planet, if there is any good whatsoever in your life, it comes from the very one you hate. And so if we are to show honor to a father, and we are to show respect to a master, then what about the Lord of hosts? The Lord, who is, as the Puritans used to say, he is not the, uh, the mayor of some small village or the governor of some tiny province. This one against whom you are so nonchalant and apathetic is the Lord of hosts, who needs nothing from your hand, even at this very moment. Thousands upon thousands and millions upon millions of flaming creatures with such glory. If one of them were to appear in this room right now, it would strike us all dead with its beauty. Millions, countless of them serve him constantly, praise him constantly. He needs nothing from you. So him calling you to himself and him asking you to come and serve is not a need to be fulfilled. He's offering you a privilege. A privilege. The greatest act of judgment that God can pour out on a people is being poured out on America. And it is this, he's taken away the knowledge of God. And he's closed the mouth of those who are supposed to be speaking for him. So that little boys lead us with their silly little ideas. And we like it that way. Because we really do want our best life now. But God, the true God, he acknowledges who He is. And so does all of heaven. And He offers you the privilege to know Him, to enter into a relationship with Him, and to follow Him with everything. He goes on and He says this. Notice in verse 6 that He is speaking to the priests. 
who despise his name. A priest. What is the purpose of a priest? The priest, the Levitical priesthood, they received the greatest privilege of all of Israel. Of all the tribes of Israel, they were granted the greatest privilege of them all. Sir, let, let Issachar and others go out and gain great wealth. Let Judah be strong and mighty with muscle and battle and sword and steel. But the Levites were given the greatest of all gift, and that is the presence of God. But isn't it amazing? We're just like them, aren't we? We would rather have the wealth of Issachar and the muscle of Judah and the prosperity that we know to be our own. We'd even rather have missions and ministry than to have God. Just God. They were granted the greatest privilege anyone has ever known prior to you because you have been granted a greater privilege for in the new covenant they are all priests of God for in the new covenant in every one dwells the Spirit of God in the new covenant everyone is allowed to come as near as he desires now the priests here say this they say how have we despised your name isn't it amazing we never know what's wrong with us. We never know what's wrong with us. We can so easily spot the tiniest error in the life of another man. But we ourselves can commit the greatest atrocities against God, the most heinous crimes, and be totally, totally ignorant to it. Until one day God reveals in mercy himself, his law, his will. And we are struck down in our heart and we realize, oh, what have I done? What have I become? They despised his name and they didn't even know it. You and I do the same. Whenever anything fills our mind more than God. your houses and your homes, your cars and your land, your clothing with expensive emblems on them that you think about so much, Christmas that has been stolen away by a fat elf called Santa, all the things, your hobbies and golf clubs and guns and bows and tree stands and balls that bounce and wobble, 